Well, we're continuing this morning our series on Ephesians. So if you want to turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. We rocketed through Ephesians 1 in about six weeks. Um, So Ephesians 2 is going to be about another three weeks. The aim is to try and finish Ephesians 2 by Christmas so that we can then do our nativity series. And this morning we're looking from verses, verses 1 through 10. A very familiar passage, and if you want a title, if you're making notes, it's a trip down memory lane, which is really what Paul is taking us on as we gather around these verses from 1 to 10. And you were dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this familiar text, I I pray this morning that there would be nothing familiar about the truth contained within it. Lord, would we come across this rescue mission today as if for the first time, would our hearts be freshly amazed, would they be freshly cultivated with humility and assurance and joy as we gather around this most joyous rescue mission? Lord, you know my love and affection for those gathered in this room. And Lord, I can only glimpse at your love and affection for them. So Lord, speak to them, comfort them, bring hope to them. Have your way amongst us. Amen. What would you do if an 18-month-old toddler got stuck down a pipe? And having got stuck down the pipe, she's too deep for you to reach her. And she's too young for you to communicate with her. Well, that's what happened in the October of 1987, and that is the conflict that Midland Police in the USA encountered. A young girl by the name of Jessica McClure, 18 month old, got stuck down an eight-inch pipe. She was outside in the garden, and she fell down an eight-inch pipe. She fell 22 feet. And as she fell down the pipe, the only reason why she stopped is because after 22 feet, it opens up into an 18-inch situation, And what had taken place is her leg had got stuck behind her head through the eight-inch pipe, and she got stuck on debris. Now, she was therefore hanging 
by her leg above her head in an eight-inch pipe, and below her was a 67-foot drop. What would you do? How would you get her out? Well, a man by the name of Andy Glascock was the police sergeant that first rocked up to see the situation. And here's, here's what he found. Nobody understood the magnitude of it. You couldn't even begin to comprehend it. There was a small backyard with a little metal pipe sticking out of it. No one could believe that someone could fall down that. But they had. And it was as you heard the crying that you realized someone was really down there. Upon arrival, a few officers began a desperate attempt to try and free Jessica by digging with anything in sight as other units and firefighters were called to the scene. They were basically making no progress trying to free her, and so eventually realized they would need someone with real expertise to try and get her out. They contacted a man named David Lilly, who was a veteran engineer who worked with the U.S. Department of Mine Safety. This man had years of experience rescuing trapped miners, The problem was he was in New Mexico, and so it would take time for him to get there. Meanwhile, everyone already at the scene started to put their heads together to figure out what to do. There was a backhoe there, and so someone tried to dig a hole, but that didn't work. The earth was too hard. They then decided to drill a hole next to the well and dig across it. They thought it would be accomplished in an hour. Instead, it went on and on. More rescue teams, spectators, and media began to show up all the time. The hardest part in it all was that you could hear her crying. It was a scared whimper, like she was not sure what was going on. I have children, and there was no way once you heard her voice that you could leave her there until the end of it. As I listened to Jessica cry, I thought about my children. My wife and I had raised four kids of our own and adopted one more. I'm a child type of guy, and so I couldn't listen to the crying too long without tears flowing down my face. Finally, David Lilly, the expert in rescuing miners, arrived, and he too soon met several obstacles. The rock beside the well was prehistoric rock that would take almost two days to cut through. They were making a horrendously slow process, drilling down at only two inches per hour. Finally, Lilly said that this wasn't going to work as it was, and that they would need a high-pressure water-blasting drill. The nearest one was all the way across the state of Texas, and so they had it immediately put on a plane. When the drill arrived, they began drilling very successfully. And after three days of drilling down, they began to dig across by hand. It was tedious. But finally they got to the pipe, drilled a hole through it, and the first rescuer reached up and touched Jessica's toe. The first actual rescue attempt was to prove unsuccessful. They had trouble getting into the open shaft in a way that could free her. I said, just couldn't get her out. The team came back up to the surface to reevaluate and regroup. And at that point, they realized there was no plan B. They had to get her out one way or another, and they had to get her out soon, even if they had to break her leg to get her out. She wasn't able to stay down there any longer. The second time they went into the shaft, everything at the surface was very tense. Then up came one of the rescue workers, holding baby Jessica in his arms. I fell on my knees and started crying. Everyone was crying tears of gladness, and there was joy on every face, for baby Jessica had been saved. You know, I heard that story at the pastor's conference that we've just been to. It's shared by a man, one of my friends, Jim Donahue. And as I heard the story, I couldn't help be affected by it. 
the thought of an 18-month-year-old girl falling down a, a pipe and then not being able to get her out is almost overwhelming as you consider what that would be like for her and what that would be like for the parents and those around. So it affected me in and of itself. But it also affected me because as I was listening to it, it reminded me in an illustration way of an even greater rescue. A rescue that actually involved me. And a rescue that would change my life forever. See, you want to know what this text is about in Ephesians chapter 2? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it is quite literally the greatest rescue ever told. A rescue that involves you and that involved me. A rescue which is entirely all of grace. That's what this is all about. The greatest rescue ever told. A rescue which is all of grace and a rescue that has your name in it. You know, when Paul planted the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, he had founded the church. He evangelized the church. And for three whole years, he was speaking to them as their pastor and as their leader. So no doubt, having evangelized them and having cared for them week on week through the preached word, they would have heard the gospel many, many times. Paul himself was incredibly passionate about the gospel. He considered nothing more important than the gospel. To Paul, the gospel was first things first. And for three years, the Ephesians would have heard the ins and outs of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The glorious truths of this great rescue. And though Paul knew, though, their tendency to forget. And so knowing their tendency to forget, he writes to them. And right up front, he reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of the great rescue that involves their lives. Folks, you haven't got the Apostle Paul talking to you. You've only got me. And I've only been here eight, ten weeks in the context of public ministry. I'm no Paul. If Paul needed to remind the Ephesians of the gospel, then how much more do I need to remind you of the gospel? And how much more do I need the gospel for myself as a regular reminder? We all have a tendency to forget. We all have a tendency to get distracted. You can ask my wife about how I get distracted all the time. The notorious moments in the car driving anywhere. I even have a sat-nav and I can't hear her because I'm so distracted. It's awkward. And then suddenly you find yourself at completely the wrong place and you think, how did I get here? Well, it's so easy to do that in life as well. We think, I'm passionate about the gospel. I know the gospel. And before we know it, we veer off and we're like, how, how did I get here? How did I forget? Paul, therefore, takes the time in this text to take the Ephesians and indeed now us in the grace of God on a trip down memory lane. He pulls the curtain back on our lives. He pulls the curtain back on the greatest rescue mission ever told, a rescue that involves you, a rescue which is all of grace. And so he takes them to their past he takes them to their present, and he takes them to their future. So let's begin where he starts, their past, and that's in verses 1 through 3. He holds our hand, and he takes us along the memory lane, and first of all, he wants us to remember our past. Remember who we were. Remember who you were. This is what he says in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Robin Bevere, one of the pastors at Covenant Life Church in Gatesburg, says, if you do not see the enormity of your sin, you will not appreciate the enormity of his love. If you do not recognize the depth of your depravity, you will not appreciate the depth of his mercy. It's so true. You see, what Paul is doing here, before dazzling us with the glories of the gospel, he's putting the black velvet out first. He's giving us a context of who we were, reminding us of our perilous situation, a situation actually far more fearful than that even of baby Jessica. See, a number of years ago, I bought my wife a, a eternity ring. And I remember going into this posh shop, and it was, it was so posh, it was clear that I wasn't going to be able to afford it. But we walk in, and my wife reminds me that I've got a credit card, which isn't a helpful conversation. But we walk in, and the first thing they do, I, I was fearful right up front, because the first thing he did is said, would you like a drink, and would you like somebody to look after your kids? And you think, this sounds expensive. This is going to be awkward. But nonetheless, we declined on that, but we all sat down. And the first thing he did was then get a big piece of black velvet and put it across the table. Because he wants to show us the diamonds. So he wants the context to be black. That's what Paul is doing here. He's showing us the actual perils of our situation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you realize that? This is your story. You see, this is, when you come to this text, one of our greatest challenges is so often we look back on our old life and we think, I wasn't that bad. I don't think I was that bad. I think I was a decent guy. I, I certainly made mistakes, but I don't think I was that bad. Now, whatever you think about yourself prior to salvation isn't the issue. The issue is the divine perspective on you prior to salvation. And this is the divine perspective upon you outside of salvation. You were dead. You were dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. J.R. Packer says the word dead evidently signifies total unresponsiveness to God, total unawareness of his love, and total lack of the life he gives. No metaphor for spiritual inability and destitution could be any stronger. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were still walking, but you were the walking dead. In the United States of America, when somebody is, has a death sentence upon their life, when the time comes when the death penalty is going to be actually instructed, it's traditional for them that as the man or the woman come out of the cell, the guards stand behind the man or the woman and they say, Dead man walking. And he walks to his death. That's us. We were dead women, men and women walking. We were still alive in our flesh, but our spirits were dead. Our spirits were cut off from God. They were unalive. They were unable to see. There was an inability to please the Lord. There was an inability to desire to see God. We were so far down the mine, but there was no cry. We were dead. We were stuck. And we were dead, just waiting for the moment when our leg would give way and we would fall to our eternal death. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Ever since Adam screwed up, which we shouldn't get too self-righteous about because we'd do exactly the same, 
But ever since Adam screwed up in Genesis, ever since thereafter, we are born into sin. We sin because we are sinners. We can't help it. It's depravity. It's not utter depravity, which is why the world doesn't completely go to pot. God, in his common grace, doesn't fall to utter depravity. But it is nonetheless depravity. There are times in our lives that we can see, and you see that with children, don't you? You know, you don't have to train kids to say, mine! That comes naturally. Everything is theirs. You don't have to say, you know what, Lydia, now you're, now you're like six months. Um, when daddy says no, that really means yes. And you seem to... Re- uh, people always say, you know, I, I, I don't think kids are really that sinful. And you're like, seriously, come and watch them. I mean, honestly, you, you, you say to a child who's like, one, they can barely walk. They pull themselves up to the TV and you say, don't touch. And they stand there. And they turn around, see if you're looking, and you think, that is that sin. That's the nature of, I, 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 I don't want to do as I'm told. I want to do what I want to do. Get out of my face. We're all the same. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And in that state, we read in verse 2, in that state, we freely followed the course of this world. We freely pleased ourselves, doing our thing, rejecting God and doing what we wanted to do. We freely followed the prince of the power of the air, which basically talks about Satan. And we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and our mind. We were dead. And the ultimate fruit of that is we walked around living for the world, following Satan, and just doing whatever we wanted to do according to our flesh. That's who we were, as biblically defined. And verse 3 tells us then that like the rest of mankind, we were by nature children of wrath. You know, there is no more fearful statement in all of Scripture than knowing that you are a child of wrath. There is nothing more fearful and concerning to our souls than realizing I was an object of God's wrath. You can so easily brush over that as if it's no big deal and I don't really know what it means and not to worry. But the reality of Scripture is there is nothing more fearful and more frightening and being a child of his wrath. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, in the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability, but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazingly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him. Sly his majesty, turn their noses at his words and works and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends upon his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and say, well, I'm not too bothered, never mind, I don't really care what they do, surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? Should God care nothing of my rebellion or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glories, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. You know, folks, in all honesty, there is nothing more terrifying and nothing more fearful than the coming day of God's wrath. So often in churches, and I know it because I've lived in them at different times, you just hear so much about God's love, 
and God's mercy and God's grace that you go away as a child thinking that God is either Santa Claus or the Sky Fairy. I mean, there is just no context. You just think, God's just great, and I'll ask him if I've got a problem. But there's no context for real life. God is a God of love. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. But the Bible is also clear that he's also a God of holiness. He is also a God of justice. And he's also a God of righteousness. And where holiness and righteousness and justice and our sin meet, his wrath is an inevitable consequence. The writer of Hebrews says this, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And in Revelation, John continues that by saying, for the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And he paints a picture of how terrifying it is as people stand around trying to pull rocks on themselves to get out the way of God's wrath. We were by nature children of that wrath. We were dead, unresponsive to the Lord, dead in our trespasses and sins, freely living for the world, freely following the prince of the power of the air, freely gratifying the desires of our heart. And the consequence of that is we were objects of his wrath on a collision course with the day of wrath to come. That's the black velvet. And it's fearful, isn't it? That was your story. You think the situation that Jessica was in was bad? It was. But your situation was far worse. It was far more incredible as you were on a collision course with the wrath of God. God could have left us there. He could have just said, well, listen, I told you not to. You ran down the pipe. You have the consequence. He could have done that. And he would have been just to do that. He wouldn't have been wrong. He would have been righteous and holiness to do that. But instead, in verse 4, Paul now transitions us to our present. And he transitions us with these two incredible words. Listen, verse 4. But God. (laughs) There are no two greater verses in the Bible than these two bad boys. You know what I'm saying? It is bad news from verses 1 through 3. It is horrendous. It should put the fear of God into us. But then we arrive with the words, but God. Not but me, not but man, but not, not but someone else, but, but God. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God. We willingly followed the ways of the world, but God. We lived for ourselves gratifying the desires of our heart, living for ourselves, but God. We were by nature children of wrath, but God. Paul is introducing us to one serious change in our circumstances. I wish he could have given us a longer introduction, a longer build-up to this change, but he doesn't. Between verses 3 and 4, in so many ways, is the cross. It is Calvary. And so we read that we are objects of his wrath, and then we read But God. But God what? Here's what. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Check it out. Is it not amazing? This is incredible words. But 
God, but God graciously intervened. We were down the mine. We were dead. We were buried. He would have been just and right to leave us there, but he didn't. He came after us. He got in that pipe, and he came after our lives, and he grabbed us, and he pulled us out, and instead he stayed down there and took the fall in our place. God in his grace intervened and came after us. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Folks, in grace and in mercy and in love, God saved you. You were stuffed. I was gone. People say, oh, well, no, I chose to get out the pipe. What? How did you do that? You were dead. You were not only down the pipe, you were dead down the pipe. You have no chance. You cannot save yourself. God must come after you. He must seize you. He must grab you. He must pull you out. He must make you alive, otherwise you will never be alive. God, in his grace and mercy, has saved you. You were dead, but not anymore. Now you're alive together with Christ. Why? Because he saved you. Charles Spurgeon says, When Paul wrote this epistle, he declared, listen, You have been saved, not shall be or maybe, but have been. He did not write partly saved or on the way to being saved or hopeful of salvation. He says, by grace, you have been saved. Isn't that wonderful? By grace, you have been saved. That is your story. Did we deserve it? No. We rebelled against him. He told us that we were called to live for him and worship him and find our joy in him and our identity in him. But we rejected him. We rejected the creator for the created, as we read in Romans 1 and 2. Did we deserve then him to come after us? No, not at all. Did we earn it? Well, I don't see anything we earned. We just got ourselves down the pipe. No, we didn't earn anything. We were dead down the pipe. So how did it happen? How did it happen that we went from down the pipe to on the top? Well, here's how, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. How did it happen? By grace. You didn't earn it, neither did I. You didn't deserve it, I certainly didn't. But how did it happen? Because we have a loving and gracious and incredible God. He came after you in grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But he loved you enough to pile in that pipe after you and grab you and pull you out because he loves you. And because in grace and mercy, he wanted you. He chose you. And then he died at Calvary on a cross so that you may have life and life in abundance. And that as you put your faith in him then, you can know for yourself that you're forgiven, that you're redeemed, that you're reconciled, that heaven is your home. Why? Because he pulled you from the pipe. He raised you from the pipe because you have been raised with Christ. In the same way Jesus Christ rose from the dead three days later. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we raised from the dead too. We become spiritually alive in a new way. Now, we can often at this point think, so I did do something. I put my faith in him, right? Check it out. Badge. Okay, well, hang on. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yeah, that's my bit. (laughs) No. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
the faith that you exhibited to put your faith in Jesus Christ by the way of salvation, it's a gift, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not your own doing. It's the incredible grace and mercy of God himself. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. He says, We do not contribute to our salvation, even in so vital a matter as the faith by which Christ's work is received. If faith were a virtue, then we would be able to boast in heaven. We would be there because of the grace of God plus our faith. And another would not be there because his case, well, because in his case, faith was lacking. No, not even faith is a work. Nothing that you or I can do, however great or small, can get us into salvation. And if we think there is, we are still trusting in ourselves and our ability rather than Christ. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all of grace. From start to end, it's the work of Jesus Christ. All you bring to the party is your death down the pipe. He does everything else. Even your faith. It was a gift. He opened your eyes, gave you the gift of faith so that you were able to respond. Paul holds, therefore, the Ephesians' hands and shows them their past. This is who you were. He shows them their present. This is you now, saved by grace alone, through faith. Oh, but even the faith, that was a gift. And then he moves them forward and shows them their future. He wants them to remember even their future by saying this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, it's so easy to get distracted by the words good works. It's so easy, and I believe completely incorrect, to read this as Paul is reminding us of their past, reminding us of their present, and now we say thank you very much, and we go and please Jesus with our good works. But that ain't, that ain't what this is about. This is a story all of grace. And for verses 1 through 10, it is all of grace. The focus here is not on our works. The focus here is on future grace. The focus here is on the grace of God. Listen, in verse 1, what does he say? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, he has come after you. He has saved you. He has plucked you from the grave. He's raised you together with Christ. He's seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. And now... God prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in them. It's the story of two walks. The walk of death and the walk of life. But notice the issue there. The issue then is not on our good works. The issue in that is a dramatic change has taken place in our lives. And the whole issue there is it's all been done by God. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Oh, so that's all about him. Yeah. Created in Christ Jesus. Okay, I can't do that. Who did that? Oh, it's all him. For good works, which God prepared. Oh, so he prepared it too. Do you see? It's about future grace. He's helping us see that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lost. You were bombed. You were an object of his wrath. But God in his grace came after you. He died in your place so that you may have life and life in abundance. He plucked you from the grave. He rose you up. He forgave you and adopted you and redeemed you. He seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. And even the good works that you're now going to walk in, don't believe that they are yours either. 
Because he created you to do those things. He helped you to do those things. And he's prepared for them all in advance for you to do. So all glory, past, present, and future will go to him because all presence of grace, past, present, and future, is all his. Do you see? This is the greatest rescue ever told. This is a rescue that involves you. And it is a rescue from start to finish that is all of grace. It's a great trip down memory lane, isn't it? As you realize that's, that's my story. That's your story. You were dead. But now you're alive. How? By the grace of God alone. Well, surely I put my faith in him. Yeah, that was a gift too. It's all him. It's all the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is all by his grace you know if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as I was preparing for this week my biggest grief is that although this is a trip down memory lane for believers this isn't a trip down memory lane for you you see Paul wrote this to Christians it's written to the Ephesians church and so he wants them to know individuals who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior He wants them to know that this was your story, this was your past, this is your present, this was your future. But if Paul was here today, he would be looking you in your eyes and saying, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your trip down memory lane stops at the end of verse 3. You're still as biblically defined an object of his wrath. All what we said at the start about how fearful it would be to fall into the hands of a living God, that's... That's still your story. You know, if you are a visitor and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, thank you for coming. You know, we're thrilled to have you here. And to be honest with you, we don't think we're any better than you. We, we don't think that we've got it all sorted out. Hang around longer than about two minutes, you'll figure out we haven't got it all sorted out. The difference is we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. We realized we were dead. We realized that we were cut off from God. We realized that we were under his wrath. And so according to Scripture, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You are perishing. You are down the pipe, a more fearful pipe even than baby Jessica. I would be no type of friend or pastor to you to not explain to you the truth of that. You're an object of his wrath. But God, he came after you. 2,000 years ago, the Savior of the world was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. He lived a sinless life, and then he died on a cross. And as he declared, it is finished, we're all wondering what is finished. The means of rescue. The means to get you out. He died upon the cross as the sky blackened. God was pouring out his wrath on his son. Why is he pouring out his wrath on his son? His son was sinless. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was paying for the wrath that my sin had earned. He was paying for the wrath that all those who would put their faith in him had earned. Folks, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, put your faith in him today and you will then know the joys of being lifted from the pipe, forgiven, 
redeemed, adopted, reconciled to God, knowing that heaven is your home. This can be your story. You cannot earn your way out of the pipe. Believe me, I tried for years. It sucked. You know, everything I tried to do, I just thought, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try and please God. I'm not quite sure what to do, but I'm going to have a go. You can't. How good is good enough? Perfection. You've got to live completely perfected throughout your whole life. Well, I can't do that. I know, neither could I. That's why we need a saviour. Good news, we have a saviour. His name is Jesus Christ. Christianity is different from any other religion in one specific way. Christianity fundamentally believes that I cannot earn my way to God. There is nothing I can do. Every other religion tends to think that I can do something. Christianity says, no, I can't. I can't do a thing. But I can put my faith in Jesus Christ, and he has done it all. He has done it all. He died on the cross so that I may have life and life in abundance. Please, please, if you do not know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, verses 1 through 3 is your story right now. Before you go home today, make sure that your story is 1 through 10. He came after you. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And this day, know that you have life and life in abundance in his name. Get out the pipe. Do so by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If though you're here today and you're a Christian, which is the majority of folk, I just want to encourage you with this text, knowing our tendency to forget, which is why Paul has put it here, I want to encourage you to regularly walk this memory lane. I just think we leave it too long. We think we know the gospel and we move off it. And the challenge is the perils of forgetting are severe. When we forget the gospel, we tend towards legalism. We tend towards thinking that our relationship with God is based upon our behavior when it's not. It's based upon the work of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ alone. When we forget the gospel, when we forget the great rescue, we have a tendency and temptation towards subjectivism, thinking that the way I feel determines how God really feels about me. But it doesn't. The truth is he loved you enough to come after you and to die in your place. I'll tell you how he feels about you. He loves you with ever-ending mercy and grace. When we forget the glorious gospel, we have a tendency to think of condemnation thoughts, to just think and wallow in our sin and just be more aware of our sin than we are the grace of God. Folks, when we remember the gospel and when we remember the rescue, we realize that our sin was paid for in full at Calvary. He's paid it all. So what are you wallowing around in? But when we forget, Satan tempts us to despair. And he tells us of the guilt within. And before we know it, the baggage that we put on Jesus Christ, we've run over to him and we've put on again. And we're walking around condemned. But when we remember the gospel, when we remember and we regularly take this walk down memory lane, then condemnation and subjectivism and legalism aren't our themes. Instead, condemnation becomes joy. Legalism becomes assurance, and subjectivism becomes humility. That's what I want for this local church. I want us to be amazed by grace. I want us to be living in the good of the gospel. And so here's just quickly a couple of ideas of how practically you can walk down memory lane regularly in your lives. Number one, memorize the gospel. Find ways of memorizing the gospel. God tells us in the Psalms to store up his word in our hearts. There's no more important words to store up in our hearts than the gospel. So when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, you know how to look 
up and see him there who made an end of all your sin. And you know that because you know the verses that relate to that. They are hidden in your heart. And they are stored in your heart. Find ways of memorizing the gospel. Sing the gospel. We looked a couple of weeks ago at why do we sing. It is so important that the gospel becomes the theme tune of our lives. And there are CDs on that bookshop. Just buy them all. Right, there are no budget for books in life. Okay, That's just a church rule. This is how it's going to work. There are no budgets for books. If you really can't afford it, then we'll figure out a way that we can just give you it. Because you need to have good music and good books filling your life. Sing the gospel. Allow these theme tunes to reflect in your life. You will find, just like we said the other week about letting the Word of God dwell in us richly, when we are listening time and time again to God's Word and the glories of the gospel influencing our lives, it affects our thinking. It becomes the theme tune of your lives. As you're aware, a debtor to mercy alone, you start to have these tunes running through your mind. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Oh, the wondrous cross the wondrous cross. They start to become the theme tunes of your lives. Number three, pray the gospel. When you pray, when I pray, there's such a temptation to just ask God for things or thank God for things. That's good. But in the midst of that, start to incorporate the gospel. Allow the gospel to function, to inform our prayers. Number four, regularly review how the gospel has changed you. Uh, Please do this. Even today, make sure in the next week you share your rescue story with someone. Because as you do, it not only blesses them, it does something in your heart as you are reminded of the goodness of God. You're reminded of his rescue mission and his story in your life. You're reminded of all he's done. And number five, study the gospel. The cross-centered life transforming grace, they're all books in the bookshop. Buy them, read them, enjoy them, love them. Folks, we all have a tendency and temptation to forget. So regularly walk down the memory lane of the gospel. We never want to move on from the cross, only into a deeper understanding of the cross, as David Pryor says. Would that be our story and the fruit of that regular transition and experience of the gospel mission and the gospel story Would joy and humility and assurance be our theme? Let's pray. And if the band could come back up, that'd be great. In fact, let's stand together, folks, and I'll pray for you. Lord, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to walk down memory lane. This truly is the greatest rescue ever told. There's nothing greater than this that we can ever imagine to know that we were completely lost. Lord, like Jessica, we couldn't free ourselves. We couldn't work our way up the pipe. There was and is no way. And yet in your grace, you came down the pipe after us. Lord, thank you for pursuing me. Lord, I was lost, but now I am found because of your grace and your grace alone. It is all of our stories. And so, Lord, help us to delight in your word. Would this rescue mission be the theme of our lives every day? And would we never tire of excitement and joy and zeal as we examine what you've done? For your glory, Lord. Amen.